Alex, how are you doing? Alex? I can't hear you, man. Can you hear me? Alex, can you hear me, buddy? Can other people hear me? Let me see. Uh, hello, Alex? I, I heard something. Okay, so somebody can hear me, but Alex, I think it's I think it's you. Maybe you should leave the room and uh, come back. Oh, now, now, now I hear something. Alex? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. What, what was going on? No idea. You just popped in. <laughs> oh, you didn't hear me until right now. Nope. Oh. Okay. Well, I've been trying to. Yeah, I've been trying to talk to you for like fifteen, twenty seconds. <laughs> Sorry about that. Must be on my end. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, this this thing can be a little bit a little bit glitchy. Anyways, uh, so how you doing? Doing well, doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing good. Um, so, what's going on with? I want to know what's going on with the uh, Ukraine uh, refugees because you were um, updating daily. Do you still update daily? Because I just I just must have missed it. I haven't seen it in a while. I haven't been updating daily because the UNHCR, which is the High Commissioner for Refugees. <laughs> has stopped updating daily on the refugee flow numbers. And so now they update weekly. And the most recent data we have is that around about around 7.2 million or so Ukrainians have left. Um, and there are about, there are 5 million or so registered uh, in the EU as refugees. How many in registered, you said? Five million. Five million registered. So we five million registered. So that's the um, that's the uh, so the, the two million might be in Russia or they might be somewhere else. Yeah, they're in Russia. They're in Belarus. Some are in Turkey and uh, some of the countries in the Caucasus. Uh, a handful have made it to North America, but the vast majority, you know, five million out of seven million, are in the EU right now. Uh, and some of those may have gone back. We don't know. So that's the problem is these are just gross flows. Um, and the registration number is like a, a good stock uh, number, a good estimate. But the Ukrainian government tracks uh, the number of Ukrainians who have, um, well, they, they track the number of re-entrances to the Ukraine, uh -huh. but that's not individuals. So it could be that people go back and forth a lot, the same individual, maybe counted 10, 10 times. And there's a lot of anecdotes about you know, Ukrainians coming from Ukraine to Poland, and they go back the next day to maybe get a family member or, or to do some business, and they come back, back and forth. So we don't really know the grow uh, the the net numbers. What are, what are the uh, what are what are the numbers for the flows going back in? That could give us maybe a, a maximum estimate. Yeah, the maximum estimate. The last I saw about uh, two and a half million um, okay. admittances. Okay, so seven million have left and then two and a half at most um, have gone back. Right. So probably so four and a half, four and a half to 7 million, uh, probably closer to 7 million 
uh, is the, um, is, is what we can be confident is the outflow, which is like, you know, one, uh, like one sixth of the population or something. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's an enormous percentage of, um, the population. Like I can get those numbers up, uh, real quick, but, um, it is the largest and quickest, um, outflow that we've recorded of, uh, refugees, um, ever. Because the, um, Syri- the, the Syrian refugees, what was the total? I remember like 1 million arrived in Germany a year. What was the total number who ever left Syria? So um, according to like right now, for instance, there's like 5.7 million uh, uh-huh. Syrians outside um, of Syria. But one estimate, and, and that's like according to the UNHCR. But the thing is, a lot of the Syrians who got out or... Were, were like guest workers who were working in Saudi Arabia or in the Gulf countries when um, the civil war started. And a lot of them stayed for good reasons. Uh-huh. So if you count all of that, um, there's uh, about a million more on top of that. So you're closer to like 6.7 million. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's a large outflow, but it happened over several years. Yes. Yeah. You know, outflow in Ukraine, it's, you know, in a court, in a period of like three months. yeah yeah and you have i mean it's hard to it's harder to get somewhere good from syria while ukraine has all these opportunities it has all these you know uh what what's uh, the you know these countries are welcoming what's the what's the pace has the pace slowed down a bit the pace seems to have slowed down so we were averaging about 40 to fifty thousand uh per day uh, by the time the UNHCR stopped updating on the daily flows. And that had been consistent for the last 50 days or so. Um, so that, that, that was sort of the flow. And it seems to have slowed down a little bit to the sort of uh, 30 to 45,000 uh, per day outflow. But, you know, one, one of the things for Still Ukraine... Still 30, 30 to 40,000 per day? That's, uh, that's, like a, that's more than that's a million, around a million a month, right? Yeah, it's great. It's it's a very large flow. I mean, and one of the things Ukrainians have, it's not just that their neighbors are more welcoming. Um, you know, Turkey was very open to Syrian refugees for a long time, uh-huh. uh, for instance. But it's that you um, Ukrainians, it's not a rich country, but they're rich enough to be able to leave more easily. Uh, right. There's like train networks, there's roads. They have more money than your typical Syrian does, which is like a very, very poor country. So this is one of the things we see in immigration generally. Is it's not indigents who leave. It's sort of people who are around this sort of ten thousand um, dollars in income or so who are the ones most likely to leave because they have good prospects elsewhere. But they also have the ability to take time off of work to afford tickets, um, et cetera. They're not on like the edge of starvation or subsistence. So a lot of people who are anti-immigration, they will say, um, they will say, uh, you know, support people uh, becoming wealthier in their own countries. You know, that's uh, <laughs> give foreign aid, get them wealthier, do whatever it takes. But then what you're saying is the very poorest people, you know, their income will come up a little bit and they'll be more likely to, to come to the West, right? Immigration yeah. restrictions should, <laughs> should try to do the opposite, <laughs> if anything, right? Yeah, it's, it's this thing where like, it's sort of, uh, you know, immigration increases up to about $10,000 per year income in the home country and then it tails off and starts to decline after that but that was one of the points i pointed out when uh kamala harris and president biden were saying we need to strike at the roots of migration in central america by giving them all this aid and increasing economic development and i'm like you know 
I don't think there's a good case for that anyway, because economic, you know, foreign aid doesn't work very well. But um, even if it were to succeed, and this is like the first time it would ever succeed, it means that a lot more people would be able to uh, to come. And it's like, and then people had this bright idea of like paying people not to come. And I'm like, well, you're just giving them money that they can funnel into the smugglers uh, to get them up here quicker. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's silly. Like people don't think about the incentives um, and, and how migration behaves. <laughs> Yeah. So I mean, your view on immigration um, is, you know, you're very uh, pro-immigration. Um, you work at the Cato Institute, which is pro-immigration, but, you know, otherwise on most things conservative. And so, you know, there's conservative hostility to immigration. Um, why do you think that is? And, you know, like, why do you what arguments do what arguments do conservatives make for restricting immigration? Which ones do you think are most common or most uh, or most persuasive? And how do you how do you respond to them? Yeah, I mean, I'm more of a, a libertarian, right? So we, we overlap a lot with conservatives, overlap with liberals on, on, on some issues, right? So, you know, like foreign policy, which is an issue near and dear to your heart. Um, you know, we probably have more in common, at least until a few years ago, with left-wingers uh, right. <laughs> on foreign policy, right, instead of conservatives. But the, the arguments I hear uh, from conservatives, uh, I hear a whole gamut. I hear one. You know, a common one is that immigrants are going to come here. They're going to take our jobs, lower wages, um, especially hurt the poor. You know, I think that's a very common argument that we hear. Um, the idea that uh, immigrants are going to abuse the welfare state and that will result in higher deficits and higher taxes for people. We hear about how immigrants are criminals. Mm -hmm. You know, they're more likely to commit crimes or terrorists uh, who are coming here. They're going to blow us up. Uh, we hear arguments about culture, uh, many of which are kind of vague <laughs> about culture. You know, somehow they're going to destroy our culture. But if you dig down to like when you get concrete specifics, you know, that uh, people will say they're or nativists will say they're not learning English. They're not adopting American values. Yeah. Um, that, that's something that I think is, is, is very common. And um, the and, and then. One right here from Republicans and conservatives is that, you know, Democrats are going to vote, immigrants are going to vote Democrats for, Democratic forever. It's going to create sort of a one party monopoly in the long run in the United States. Uh, that's going to be very bad for freedom for the country in every other way. Um, I hear this weird argument sometimes where people say, well, you know, immigrants to the U.S., they're, they're positively selected in their home countries. They're more motivated, more educated, uh, generally have more upward mobility. So the U.S. is actually impoverishing other countries yeah. by allowing immigrants to come in. I, I don't really believe most people who say that, <laughs> uh, but uh, that, that is an argument that people say, so I have to take it seriously. And then the argument that I give the most credit to that I think I have the highest probability of being wrong about is uh, the argument that you know immigrants, they come from poor countries, um, and whatever makes those countries poor, whether it's bad culture um, unproductive ideas, uh, support for wealth destroying institutions. Maybe they could bring those with them mm -hmm. and, and influence U.S. culture, U.S. politics to the voting booth and, um, you know, worsen U.S. institutions and culture to the extent that economic growth declines here or stops entirely. And so they could like kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Yeah. Um, and that's the one that I, uh, that has kept me up at night for, for many years. And um, it kept me up for so long that I wrote like uh, a half dozen academic papers about it. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then a book for Cambridge University Press uh, exploring, um, 
exploring uh, uh, the issue. And I don't think there's much, uh, there's no evidence for it. And, and actually a good amount of evidence on the opposite side that they tend to improve institutions where they go. Uh, but I think that's the one um, counter argument where if I were to be wrong at some point or shown to be wrong, that's where it's most likely to happen. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a theory of how this happens for this theory to make sense, right? You said, oh, you know, the one theory is it's their political views. Another theory is their culture. Uh, there's Garrett Jones, who wrote the book on national IQ. So it's like how you, uh, which of these, the- like, it's, it's hard to just, you know, say, to argue against it if you don't know exactly which theory you're arguing uh, uh, against. Uh, so when you wrote the book, how did, how, did you, how did you sort of handle that and how did you approach the question? Well, I took a look at the best formulations of that yeah. argument, and there actually weren't that many. It was sort of more of a vague argument that people were making. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of um, took all that together and made the best case for it. And then my friend Michael Clemens uh, mm-hmm. published a paper in um, uh, Journal of uh, Development Economics where he uses um, basically this, this SIR model, which, you know, laugh, you know, SIR models, right, for the pandemic. But using that to try to um, assume that, um, you know, immigrants have this sort of like uh, contagion in their words, which is support for wealth-destroying mojo. Uh-huh, okay. They would bring that mojo over, and then they sort of build a model about that, and then they do some empirical tests um, sort of on the uh, very, very like sub regional level in the United States. To so, see what, like if, support for is, bigger government? Is that what they're looking at? They were just looking at total factor productivity. Okay, so how it um, changes with immigration? Yeah, how it changes with immigration, how it changes based on the country also where people come from. Uh-huh. So, like maybe a Bangladeshi will bring over the productivity levels of Bangladesh. Uh-huh. Um, a Mexican from Mexico, etc. And they basically found, like, theoretically, you get to a point uh, where, uh, you know, assuming that this relationship happens and immigrants bring this cont- contagion, like, there, there is a point where, um, like, immigrants could um, uh, do this, but the amount of immigration that is required to sort of get to that point in this theoretical model... <laughs> Uh-huh. Is um, it is uh, sixteen times greater than the current annual flows, but you uh-huh. can go up to that amount, and there's no po- no negative impact. Mm-hmm. So, so it would like- be somewhere around like four percent increase in the population of the U.S. annually due to immigration would uh-huh. be somewhere around that in their sort of uh, theory uh, in in their model. But of course, we let in annually somewhere around one third of one percent. Right. Okay. Uh, so I have a, so somebody sent me this question. Uh, let's see. And if people want to put questions into the, into the comments on the uh, chat, go right ahead. We'll, we'll go to, or if you want to, you know, speak, you can uh, volunteer. We might let someone cut in uh, here before too long, but, uh, so it's ask Narasta if a tight labor market has any advantages, does it pressure the market? So this guy has a theory here. Does it pressure the market to make efficient use of human resources, force investment in productivity, distribute new wealth, forcing CEOs to spend on quality, blah, blah, blah. The free market requires balances and tensions. A government policies that subsidizes capital with cheap labor distorts the entire economy and society, ergo Trump. Okay, uh, so um, yeah, he seems to have a theory of economics and polis- politics in there. 
all yeah. in one. Um, I would say that the evidence from the empirical academic literature on the economics of immigration and, and from other and from labor economics is that the labor demand curve is fairly elastic, which means that large increases in the supply of workers have very, very small impacts on wages. And this basic economic theory uh, would suggest that wages really wouldn't be that affected at all. And that's because um, yeah. the labor demand curve is determined by the productivity of the worker. It's how much they can produce is the yeah. maximum wage that they can be paid. And so um, firms invest capital when and they invest more capital, actually, when there's more workers. Yeah. Uh, because like if you have a construction site with 10 workers and 10 hammers and you have an 11th worker come in, if you don't buy that extra capital good, that extra hammer, that guy's just going to be sitting around using a rock or something, right? He's not going to be that productive. So firms make investments in capital goods and that offsets any potential wage decline. So like the first order effect is, you know, immigrants come in, might put some downward pressure on wages. Firms invest in new capital to employ those workers more efficiently to maximize profits. And the effect is that uh, wages go back up to about what they were in the economy. And uh, the thing is, because entrepreneurs and businesses are forward looking, they invest in capital in advance uh, yeah. of this happening. So the net effect um, of immigration on wages is pretty positive. Now, there are distributional or, or around zero, but there are distributional effects. So there could be that the you know wages for high school dropouts might um, go down relative to other workers, uh, which is what George Borjas at Harvard observes. But his work gets miscited and misinterpreted uh, all the time. And he, he complains about it. He complained about it at Cato once at an event where um, his work just finds that the relative wages of different groups of American workers by education has changed. But the absolute wages for these groups has not gone down. It's just High school dropouts have a little bit lower wage relative to um, high school graduate American workers. That's all that he really found. And he's attributed that to immigration. So, Borja, so Borjas is not, um, does not like his work being used by people. He thinks people who are for restrictive immigration are misusing his work because I thought that I thought Borjas was himself pretty anti-immigration. Um, is, is he or is he, is he not? He he is uh, in support of a restrictive immigration policy, but he doesn't like people um, interpreting his work incorrectly. Uh -huh. <laughs> so he will say like wages didn't go down, but the relative wages of lower skilled Americans, um, you know, they, they basically didn't go up as much as uh -huh. they otherwise would. Or there's like a more of a gap um, between low skilled American workers and mid skilled American workers than there otherwise would have been. So so his opposition to immigration is just based on distributional effects <laughs> that's what i get from his empirical literature um uh, uh, about it um he, he does have this other paper where he, he takes a look at miami specifically yeah um like miami is a common experiment in labor economics because during uh 42 days in uh, 1980 uh, 125 000, uh cubans arrived there in this sort of exogenous shock increased miami's population by seven percent and uh, he did this research look uh, using uh, current population survey data, which is very spotty, especially back then, and found that it caused uh, like a substantial decline in the wages for high school dropouts um, in Miami. And there's been a big back and forth about this. Um, but the paper is, I mean, it, it makes some points, but you have like a sample size of like 15 to 20 workers in some years from Miami. And it's like, yeah. uh, that's, pr that's pretty hard to say anything. And then the census at the same time changed 
how they were um, uh, trying to uh, survey people with the current mm. population survey. So they wanted to overestimate to get a larger sample of black workers um, to try to make up for the census undercounting them in earlier years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, black workers controlling for everything else do make slightly lower, at least on the lower end, do have slightly lower incomes uh, or wages if they are uh, high school dropouts. So if it turns out, if you correct for all that and take it out, um, there was a slight wage decline for about four or five years. And then it went right back up to where the trend line predicted it would be. Uh huh. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the higher order effect sounds right, because when somebody moves to a country, uh, they're not just a worker, right? I mean, they're a consumer mm-hmm. too. And so it's not just capital goods. They also buy consumer goods. Um, and the, you know, the idea that it's just going to be looking at it sort of as a one dimensional, like their effect on the supply and demand of labor, the labor market uh, doesn't really make much sense. And it doesn't make much sense when you like nobody thinks like this in other contexts. A lot of these people who are against immigration are also for, um, you know, like higher birth rates and like, you know, they believe in (laughs) traditional, you know, families and all that stuff. And that's also going to hurt the workforce then too, right? By their, by their own logic. Uh, it seems like there's a Malthusian, there's some, some people who are really Malthusians. Like I think the, uh, uh, Canton and like those people, like who are early environmentalists and immigration restrictionists, they were like consistent, but I don't think anyone's like actually consistent today, um, among the restrictionists. I think they want fewer immigrants and they want more American babies. Is, is that, is that your impression too? Yeah, I think that's how they uh, mostly think about it. I mean, there's some people like Dan Stein over who runs the Federation for American Immigration Reform and uh, Roy Beck, who runs Numbers USA. And they're much more in this sort of John Tanton mold of, you know, people bad for the environment. We need to have more abortions. We need to have uh, family (laughs) planning and uh, we need to cut off immigration because that's the source of uh, major population growth. So there's some of those people. Uh, who are out there still, but they don't write about it or speak about it nearly as much as they did like 20, uh, 20 and 30 years ago. I mean, the Sierra Club had this big sort of debate internally. I think it was in the 90s about um, immigration because they're concerned with the natural environment, apparently, you know, to all uh, don't care about anything else. And they had this big debate about, well, we should come out in favor of um, restricting immigration because that's the source of population growth and people are bad. Uh, but they really, you know, most of them have changed or at least changed their tactic. And I think, you know, you talk to, you know, probably 97 out of 100 restrictionists in the United States and they wouldn't bring up this argument. That the, 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 the natural environment? Yeah, I think that's just like not a big concern <laughs> for modern American um, anti-immigration folks. Yeah, I think that's right. I think everything, I mean, used to have more sort of a combination of right and left wing views. So I think if Dan Stein, if the fair people, if they still like don't, you know, support, you know, uh, abortion rights, you know, they're not going to make that well known and, you know, be taken seriously on the, on the right. Uh, so yeah, uh, the, uh, the, the one, the, the argument you mentioned about voting, uh, I think this was the one that really like became the most popular argument on the right. I think it was the most effective just because like, you know, mm-hmm. you want to get conservatives like, you know, mad about something, just tell them it helps the libs. And that's like, that's like everything. And so, <laughs> so I think when Ann Coulter wrote her book, did you read Ann Coulter's uh, Adios America? Oh yeah. It was actually the, I learned more from that book than any other book that I read in 2015 by a long shot. Yeah. Well, why did you learn? Why did you, what did you learn from it? Just the approach to thinking about it on the other side. 
So uh-huh. like I debated lots of people like Mark Akorian before and, and read their books, but Anne's book was so sort of just blunt and brutal and also, you know, funny in a lot of ways that it really was it like was a good predecessor to Trump uh, saying all the stuff he did about, about immigration. So just learning about the approach, right. And the focus on crime, uh, the focus on um, uh, culture, uh, the focus on just you icky foreigners. Cause I think so much of it is just like an aesthetic argument <laughs> at this point that I, I sort of, reduced my focus on the economics of immigration because I was thinking, well, if, if this is the type of thing that appeals and she knows her audience um, and she's a smart person, um, even though I disagree with her, um, I should probably not talk so much about like the marginal wage impact of increasing immigration <laughs> by 1%. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you, so you were under, yeah, that, that was, yeah, yeah, it was, I, 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 I got that. I mean, it was like the, the Trump, I mean, because when Republicans talk to each other, I mean, the idea that liberal, like whatever reason you have for hating liberals. And sometimes it's like the, the conservative coalition, like it's a bunch of people who hate liberals for different reasons, right? Some of them hate them for the, uh, for the, you know, the drag, uh, the critical race theory. Some hate them for, uh, uh, drag story hour. Some hate them for, you know, being socialists. Some hate them for, uh, you know, being anti-American appeasers for being abortionists. So like you have this coalition of just people who feel like they are, uh, you know, they are sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're the underdog, uh, in society, like liberals just control everything. And, you know, that's like sort of the glue that holds them together. So if you say immigration is going to, um, uh, destroy conservatism forever, whatever you care about, guns, abortion, whatever. Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's why the end culture book became so popular. And that's why I think it really took off around that time. Uh, but then, you know, the voting patterns changed, I mean, pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and so, uh, do you see and do, do you see Ann Coulter talking a lot about immigration anymore? Because I, I don't see her talking about it much. She used to be obsessed about it. She used to like around 2016, she would say, no matter what other issue you're talking about, you know, it should be about immigration because that's the only thing that matters for the future of a country. And I suspect, I don't know, I haven't talked to her about this, but I suspect that like Ann Coulter realized that like maybe they're not all going to be permanent Democrats and like maybe she stopped caring about the issue. Um, d- have you seen this like with Ann Coulter, with people in general? I've seen it with everybody. Um, actually, I've seen it with everybody. And this is something I've been remarking to, to my, my friends and colleagues who work on immigration, both here and across town. Like, this is not the big issue anymore. We got sort of used to it from like 2015 to 2020, it being the big issue. And, and it's not anymore. It's not the animating principle. And I think part of it is due to um, the politics. Like, I remember Ann Coulter, she, she wrote or tweeted or said on an interview once uh, around 2015 or 16 or 17, like, she doesn't care if Donald Trump performs abortions in the old yeah. office, <laughs> yeah. as long as he like builds the wall and ends illegal immigration. Um, and I don't see her talking about it very much anymore. It's sort of more passive comments about like he should have built the wall, but that's that's about it. And I think it can partly be explained by the change um, in voting patterns, which is which has been pretty dramatic. Um, yeah, amongst amongst Hispanic voters, for instance, uh, in, in the United States. I mean. Trump got like 25% in 2016 and got 38% in 2020. Um, yeah. And, and that's huge. And, you know, and, and in some ways, right, because I was one of these guys who took a look at what happened in California in 1994 with Prop 187. Yeah. Which was a um, 
you know, partly an immigration enforcement proposition and partly a redundant effort to lock illegal immigrants out of welfare. Mm -hmm. And uh, California Hispanic voting patterns on state level elections went from about 50 percent Republican for the governors and 50 percent Democratic to about, you know, 80 percent Democratic or so. Uh, wow. immediately thereafter. And it contrasts exactly with Texas, which has the exact same Hispanic percentage of the population. It, it went from like uh, 70% Democratic to 50-50 under George W. Bush, because as governor, he was very pro sort of immigration. He was very reached out. He, he was good about it. And so I thought, oh, man, if, if a Trumpist or somebody like Trump came in, um, he's just going to do yeah. the GOP forever. And so I was wrong about that. Uh, and I've, I've, you know, that was Mia culpa, you know, the California model doesn't apply everywhere for lots of reasons. Uh, yeah. but I, but the other side was also wrong about long run integration and political assimilation. It's happening a lot quicker than anybody thought. So in a way, I'm kind of glad that I was wrong mm-hmm. because it's better for the country and, um, you know, I'm not trying to make an excuse for myself being wrong because I definitely was, but I'd much rather be wrong in the way that I was than in the opposite way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's uh, it, it takes some of the sort of the passion. So it sounds like I mean, Hispanics are sounds like they're um, it sounds like that sounds like assimilation. Like in California, they react like Californians uh, to right wing positions, and in, like Texas, they they sort of react like Texans. Uh, yeah, but even though even in California during the Trump era, yeah, I mean something bigger happened than just like immigration and ethnic you know uh, immigrants and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. It was the sorting on educational lines and gender um, was just has just accelerated to such an extreme degree um, since Trump came along and been going on for a while, but since Trump came along that it was like, you know, that like this is bad, this group that was like disproportionately, uh, you know, less likely to go to college um, wasn't really in the uh, white collar professions, didn't have, you know, a lot of government jobs. Um, You compare them to like Asians um, who, you know, even in the last election were a little more Republican, but are still uh, haven't gone, you know, as much as, uh, uh, as much as Hispanics have. Um, you know, so you you have this, and, you, and, and it, I think it just swallowed sort of the the ethnicity thing, um, where just you know, and especially the gender gap between Hispanic men and Hispanic women. Uh, there are uh, there are uh, uh, polls where you know they have the biggest gap of any of any uh, ethnic group. It's like you know twenty twenty five points or something between their preferences for Republicans and Democrats. It's going to be interesting. The uh, Maya Flores uh, victory. Mm-hmm. Um, was was very interesting. So uh, somebody, I, I, uh, one of the election analysts said, "You look at these numbers in the Rio Grande uh, Valley. Uh, they, you know, they give you the feel of like Appalachia in 2010. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, because you're looking at the, the that the, I think it's been like 30 years or something uh, since that particular district uh, had a Republican in office. Uh, and this and this was the thing. This was huge. I think this I think this thing even in like 2012." Um, and then maybe 2016 too went to, went to the Democrats by a wide margin. Uh, so we could be—I mean, we could be in the midst of it. it. Seems like there was a shift in 2020. Um, if anything, you know, some of the special election like this and the polling results indicates that like this is not the peak of Hispanics going Republicans. It, there's an indication that we're moving towards something different. And who knows? Who knows what it'll end up? It'll end up 50-50, or it'll end up you know uh, Hispanics becoming you know actually a majority Republican. You know, we'll still have to see. But yeah. I wouldn't have predicted this either. I thought the, I thought the, uh, I thought the, um, and Coulter argument about electoral politics. I thought that was, 
not if not irrefutable, like, you know, I, I just thought things didn't change. You know what I thought? I thought that the affirmative action and sort of the celebration of diversity and this propaganda uh, had changed something. So you look at like immigrants who came to the country 50 to 100 years ago, they were told, you know, one thing about, uh, you know, they were encouraged basically to assimilate and everything about our culture and laws were pushing in that direction. And I just felt like we had, you know, everything about our culture is about, you know, uh, uh, celebrating Latinx culture and you go to college and they have, you know, Chicana studies. Uh, <laughs> and I, I just thought, and, you know, you get affirmative action in jobs. So like, you know, there's some kind of, uh, you know, there's an incentive for like buying into the system, the, the race, race spoil system. And surprisingly, like it just hasn't happened. I mean, as the left became more crazy on race, more uh, racialist, um, the Hispanics moved away from it. And, you know, I just always found that very interesting. Yeah. It's certainly something that a lot of people didn't predict. And, one of the other factors, of course, is the Republican Party changing uh, during the same time in some ways um, and, and the worries about crime. So I had a friend, uh, I, have a, I have a friend who's a labor organizer in Los Angeles, you know, big lefty, works a lot with mainly Hispanic low wage laborers uh, trying to organize them. And he was calling me in 2018 uh, and 2019 saying, listen, my Democratic friends don't get it. These guys are moving much more Republican, much more conservative. They hate crime. They hate um, all this. <laughs> they hate stuff. crime. Like, yeah, it's like, like it's such a tough position for Democrats. <laughs> like it's it is a, crime. <laughs> it, it is. It is a weird thing for that to be like a controversial statement in some quarters, yeah. right? But that's where we are. And, and they and they don't like this woke stuff. They don't like it at all. And the thing is, they are it's like something that liberals and, you know, pro-immigration people have saying forever is, is happening. They are in Hispanics and their descendants are integrating and assimilating along uh, economic and social lines. Um, very, very, uh, very well. They're not losers. <laughs> you know, it takes time. Um, yeah. you know, they have a lower income than other people, lower education. Um, but if you adjust for, um, you know, uh, switching in ethnic identification and the third and fourth and subsequent generations, um, they basically assimilate between, <clears throat> excuse me, between the third and fourth generation. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Yeah, living out here, I mean, Los Angeles, like every time I, 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 just a very common thing where I'll just be like be walking by a Hispanic man and he'll just be, he'll say something about like, let's go Brandon or something. <laughs> <laughs> like these guys, these guys are really, I, you know, uh, there's a, there's a, there, yeah, there's a, there's something, yeah, you feel that they, the sort of the, um, you know, there was this thing where, like, it's like education, non-education, but also, like, the idea of, like, the Republicans are more sort of the masculine party and Democrats are sort of more the feminine party, the men-women thing. I think it's, it's become more of a th- It's not just, like, identity politics. It's just sort of, you know, the rep- it's not just representation. It's just sort of how the parties, you know, go about, like, you know, debating issues and thinking about issues. And there's just this general outlook. Uh, so yeah, a lot of interesting things are are going on. Uh, so there's these uh, <clears throat> there's these comments in the chat. I'll read them unless somebody wants to talk. If somebody wants to talk, I'll open the floor. Uh, just push the um, push the uh, I think the hand raise button, and then I'll let you speak. Otherwise, we can just look at uh, the chat. <clears throat> Doesn't uh, let's see let's see. Here's uh, Ivis Parshesia. I know this guy from. Twitter is it is he still in here? There he is. Okay, he asks. Uh, almost all arguments made against immigration can be made about giving birth to people within our borders, but almost nobody ever suggests that we should restrict birth. Um, do you think this is uh, one could argue the right to reproduction is special? Is special, but people would rather many people would rather not have 
more children than have to live in Haiti, Somalia, etc. Do you think this is persuasive or is this too inflammatory of a comparison? What do you think, Alex? Uh, so it might be persuasive to like 1% of the population <laughs> who's yeah. interested in sort of logic and detailed arguments and the facts. So, I mean, I, I think it's a good argument. Uh, but if I were to say that, um, you know, on, on Tucker Carlson or something, <laughs> yeah. they'd be like, oh, obviously that's not the same because of, mm. you know, some other reason. I mean, one of the things I get all the time from arguments about immigration is, you know, they'll uh, they'll start with the economics and I'll be like, no, that's bad. And they'll start with culture and I'll push back against that and I'll, they'll go into crime and I'll show them the wrong. And then after three more of those arguments, right, three more of those steps, they'll go back to economics, right? So it's like, like a lot of issues. I think people have opinions and they're looking for reasons to have those opinions. And they're sort of like cycling through whatever sounds okay at the time or plausible or doesn't make them seem mean about mm -hmm. that. So I, I think that argument makes perfect sense. I mean, all the arguments against immigration are good arguments against uh, children um, yeah. in, gen in general, which is why the original nativists were all Malthusians who... Um, you know, wanted population control and to copy a China's one child policy in the United States, as well yeah. as close the borders. But I, I don't really think it's persuasive to a larger audience. Yeah. You know, no, I mean, I think that sometimes immigration researchers, they have arguments that they don't want to, you know, I think we, we've disagreed about whether this is true. They have some like hidden arguments that they don't want to admit to. I think that some of them are just, they don't want a country with fewer white people. Um, as a percentage of the population. Uh, I think there it's either, I think it's conscious for a lot of the people who are active in the anti-immigration movement. I think it's like subconscious for like your typical Fox news, you know, boomer uh, watching <laughs> TV. Um, but I do think a lot like a disproportionate share of people who write about immigration, you know, like Steve Saylor will basically admit this. I mean, he'll say, you know, people like to be around their own kind, which is like their family, you know, so he'll admit this. And then other, other people will, you know, admit this too. Do you think that's playing a large role? Um, as far as like the at the elite and the population level, and how would you like argue with somebody who who was willing to make that case? So I I think it explains a much smaller percentage of it than you do. Maybe that's just I'm trying to like steel man the other side a lot, um, but I don't think it explains. Uh, I, th I actually think that there. is a steel man. I think it's more logical than a lot of the other things they say. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of the like the economic arguments don't make sense. Like a taste-based discrimination thing. Like you know, that at least is is more logical than uh, some of the other things. So, so I think a taste-based discrimination thing is actually probably closer. It's sort of a, the aesthetic argument that I alluded to, but I'm not sure if it's so much about um, race as it's just like you foreigners. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe I'm being too nice to them. Yeah. But, um, but either, either way, I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's the same argument. If it's, if it's race or if it's not, it's a taste-based, you know, keep people out for being different than us. Yeah, uh, sort of the same reason, like, because I grew up in California and people would be like, oh, what's with all these darn Okies who moved here back in the day? Uh, which was a common thing. Like, a lot of Okies moved there in, like, the 30s or the 50s. Uh, and they're like, oh, they and their kids, just bad, bad, bad. And, um, you know, it's like, ew, icky strangers. So the other thing is I think people just don't like seeing – poverty up close so like the whole you know it's like the uh i think you know you, if poor people come to this country at least when they're starting out like illegal immigrants are the most destitute right they're sitting there in front of like you know home depot and waiting for someone to pick them up to go work at their house i think people just don't like 
don't like seeing that. Uh, it's the same reason that people have a reaction to sort of seeing the homeless on the street, even if like it's not about the well-being of the homeless. It's just like you know, I don't like to see it. it you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like you know, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of policy is like this. It's like keep it out of like you know, if you you know, something like minimum wage. Like I don't like to see someone working for a very low wage. Uh, therefore, you know, just not let them get a job at that wage. Uh, do you think you think that's going on too? Because the 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 opposition to high skill immigration, if you look at polls of Republicans, it's very low. Um, there's not a lot of opposition to high skilled immigration. I think people just have a view that like poor people are a drain, and you know it's sort of sad to see them. And I think that's driving a lot of it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and, and the funny thing is, high skilled immigrants vote much more democratic than low skilled immigrants. Yeah. Um, in the United States, I mean, uh, in the Indian Americans are about, you know, 80 to 85 percent vote Democratic um, uh, when they vote in the United States. Uh, so that, that's the funny point. Like, if you think the politics drives it, that there's just not that much salience um, about that. But, but, but on the sort of aesthetic issues, um, I think people don't like seeing poverty, but they really don't like hearing other languages. Um, you know, if, if um, uh these, uh, you know, Hispanic low-skilled immigrants all spoke English. Um, um, I think it would be much less of a concern because I think we've all been frustrated at different times trying to speak with somebody who doesn't speak our language. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's much more understandable, I think, of a frustration than, um, you know, just seeing some poor guy trying to get a job. Yeah, I think I, you know, I, th- I, I tend but, to think but, that the... Yeah, but, but, you know, but there's another thing here is that the immigration, the, the opposition to immigration is strongest in the places in the U.S. where there are the fewest immigrants. Right. Um, so it's not like they're going down to the Home Depot and seeing this. I, I think the big one of the big reasons I'm talking about is this is perception of chaos that's happening. You know, the, the, the perception that the border is open, that immigration is chaotic, that it's uncontrolled. And when people see sort of a lack of control of anything, their, their instinct is to crack down. Like my instinct is to liberalize because black markets are usually caused by bad government policy. But the instinct of almost everybody is to uh, crack down and put more restrictions, even on legal immigration, when they see uh, this sort of chaos and out of control stuff on the border. Yeah, I think I have, um, I think, yeah, I think I have, I, I, there's more of uh, my worldview. There's more of a room for just like explicit uh, racial preferences to play a role. You know, I was talking to um, a guy named uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz. He's a, a New York Times columnist. He's going to be on the CSPI podcast. Uh, it's going to be released Monday. And mm. so he wrote, he wrote a book um, that have you read, have you heard of this guy or read of his books? He wrote the book, uh, Everybody Lies and New One is Don't Trust Your Gut. I haven't read his books, no. Okay, so yeah, he uses like Google data to see what people, you know, supposedly are really thinking. Um, and then he, you know, he, he maybe heard off this paper a few years ago where like it was like searches for the N word, like yep. uh, predicted voting for uh, against Obama. And he was like, you know, I grew up, I, I was shocked that people like actually like so many people search for this word. And I'm like, you know, I grew up in a completely different place. I was not shocked at all. <laughs> like this is mm-hmm. like, a, you know, I grew up in a, it, I think I grew up a lot uh, lower class than most people who, um, uh, who end up, you know, talking or writing about politics or social issues. Uh, so to me, like the fact that people are, uh, 
searching for N-word jokes is not surprising uh, at all. I was surprised <laughs> that someone else was actually surprised about it. And so, like, I remember going on people, you know, and, like, kids would, you know, like, they would form, like, not gangs like where I was, but, like, little, like, racial, you know, clubs that, like, just split on account of race. And so the Mexicans would hang out with the Mexicans and the whites would hang out with whites. And, like, if somebody, like, you got mad at somebody, you would call them, you know, a racial slur that was appropriate for their race. Uh, just the sort of the race stuff was just so salient like all the time and people were you know explicitly like you know would say stuff like this is a white man's country i'm not that old i grew up in the you know 19 <laughs> late 1990s uh and so yeah i tend to believe that the race stuff is you know is, is really at the front so you, you you tend to think that if like they're ukrainians um, and they're speaking, you know, Ukrainian, and they're uh, just as poor, and they behave as Mexicans uh, the same in every single uh, every single way. Uh, there's not going to be a difference in treatment. Well, well, I just don't buy that. I just think that there's there's a massive difference just based on based on race, based on phenotype. Yeah, so I, I do think that racism can explain or uh, uh, part of it. Um, I just think I have a lower percentage that I attribute to that than you do. Um, and, and I don't. Well, how do you explain really... Ukraine? How do you explain the Ukrainian refugees? You know, they're just basically opening the borders for them, uh, relatively speaking. And then, you know, the Syrians and the Africans, they, you know, they were shooting them out. Yeah, I think part of it is uh, there's also like these huge, um, you know, part of it is just like the anti-Russia feeling. So, so for one thing, Europe, I think, is, is a little different. I'm much more willing to ascribe over to Europe um, some, some of the racial um, justifications that you've talked about uh, than I am to the United States. Uh, so I think that's more fair comparison over there than it is over here. But um, uh, part of it is also, I think, just like this anti-Russia um, uh, idea, trying to help Russians, whereas like the Syrian civil war was between a bunch of people nobody in the West really knew about um, and didn't really have a stake in, I think is part of it. And then there's, you know, religion, I think was the big thing that, that I heard about, at least in, um, you know, from my European family that they were worried about, I, even though they were, you know, formerly Muslim or immigrants from Muslim countries, they were worried about Muslim immigrants coming in. So yeah. that's, you know, I think correlated with what you're talking about. But yeah. part of it is, you know, maybe I'm just wishful thinking um, because I'm trying to appeal, you know, I'm not trying to convince with my, with my arguments, um, you know, the Mark Corians of the world or, or the nativists of the world, but the people who maybe listen to them a little bit uh -huh. um, who are in the middle. Um, so that I, I, I could be biased and I fooled myself over the years because of this. So I'm, I'm willing to admit that I could be entirely uh, wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> but let's say, let's say for instance, right? Like the same number of Hispanics are coming in uh, to the United States, but there's not this chaos along the border. Right. They're coming in through ports of entry. It's, it's lawful. It's orderly. It's like an Ellis Island type situation. Um, I think the opposition would be much, much less because Trump ran on the line, you know, of build the wall. It yeah. wasn't um, I mean, he, he did say, like, reduce legal immigration. But the chant at the rallies was like, build the wall. Um, yeah. It wasn't like, let's reduce legal immigration. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's like, good... Stop the... So that, 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 that's where I get that from. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And like, and culture would say like illegal immigration, you know, is not even that important. It's legal immigration. That's the, that's the problem. But I don't, that's not the message. Like a lot of the people ideologues, you know, will, you know, the people who care about immigration and stopping it will seize on illegal immigration because it pulls, you know, it, it sounds so good, uh, to the public. Um, 
But yeah, a lot of them are more concerned with legal immigration, but I don't think that's like, it's not, you know, restrict legal immigration. It's just not a, and refugee, it's funny because like refugees are also, you know, refugees are like, you know, it is a legal process um, when you're talking about refugees, but refugees seems to be grouped in with illegal immigrants. I mean, I think the idea is just like, it's, they're just chaotic because they're living a war zone. So like the pro, even though there's a bureaucratized process, um, it does seem sort of more chaotic and illegal immigration sounds chaotic while legal immigration, um, doesn't. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it does just seem like it's just like about the, uh, you know, it's, it's the chaoticness of it. It's just the idea that this is a source of disorder that's sweeping down on the land. Uh, and, and there's this other sense with refugees. I think there's a couple other things going on. One is, there's a perception now that they're all Muslims. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's not a positive perception. And then in the past, right, with Vietnamese and Cubans and Miami, um, there was a perception, there's the chaos, definitely, because they fled in such large numbers so quickly. But there's also the idea that, well, these people are trying to jump the line because they're lying. And there's something dishonorable about leaving a war zone or a bad situation because you should just change it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is ridiculous right the united states is populated by people who fled other countries yeah like like i'm really glad my ancestors didn't stay in france in the uh, 1870s like i'm really happy about that or iran in the 1980s you know mm. i'm really happy about that yeah i think that's i think most of us feel the same way yeah uh so uh ives is that how you say your name uh go right ahead yeah, yeah. can you hear me we can hear you so i think I'm kind of in agreement with Richard because I think that immigration is one of the only channels you can still kind of air a grievance about multiculturalism. It's not really acceptable to say, like, you don't like uh, immigrants within your country or you don't like this ethnic group within your country. But it still seems that it's uh, permissible, at least somewhat, to, like, say you don't like them entering your country if they come from another place. So I'm wondering if Richard thinks that, like, if we just kind of went with, you can have those attitudes, but you need to move away from the areas and you need to let other people have their rights. As if, if we just kind of give up and say, like, you can oppose multiculturalism, but you shouldn't channel that into anti-immigrant attitudes, if that would be kind of an effective strategy. Because it seems like they don't want to be around immigrants. So what I would say is, like, move away from the cities, like, move away from where immigrants are if you're going to have those attitudes. Well, I don't think that that's going to go over very well. I think people are not going to like that. But I, there is an idea that I have been toying with a little bit, which is that just, you know, freedom of association is sort of the master value, um, that you can be as racist as you want or anti-racist as you want. If government is not forcing you to interact with people you don't want to interact with, um, you can do what you want. You can do it on any scale you want. You can have a you know a workforce that's all of one race or all of one culture. Uh, you can have, you know, a, a private community that you can opt into. Um, you can have, you know, like restrictive covenants, which we used to have in this country, but don't have, uh, but, but are illegal now. Yeah, I do think that like people do have all kinds of preferences. Um, and I do think 
like if you uh, this is one of the reasons I'm obsessed with civil rights civil rights laws such an infringement on liberty um, and such a you know uh, this having has so many uh, you know harms with regards to uh, people just being able to enact their preferences even if they're not bothering anyone else. So I do think there's an argument to be made, and maybe I'll one day I'll write something about this. It's like, you know, just if you're racist, you're anti-racist, you love people, you hate people. It's freedom of association. That's the master value. You don't have to worry about your neighbors or, you know, what they look like. Or you can, you know, you can have a contract to have your own, you have to have neighbors who, who all look like you. You don't have to see people. I think that's, I think that's like, a, you know, potentially a good way out of this. I mean, one of the points, Ives, if I could just, just mention it, is the people who are most anti-immigrant already live in areas where there's very few immigrants. Like the highest polls for nativism are in West Virginia, where the foreign-born population is like 2%. Um, but they see it on the news, and they see the, cha- uh, the chaos in these other people. Um, and, and Richard, one thing I, uh, you know, I wonder what you think about this as a frame um, is, you know, immigration restrictionism is like affirmative action for Americans. <laughs> you know, I've, I think I've like tweeted like something that sounds a little bit similar uh, like that. Yeah, I, you know, I think there is a contradiction in believing that, you know, merit is the most you know, important thing. And, you know, uh, you having faith in, in markets to figure these things out and, you know, like understanding that people need to have freedom to make these decisions because some people are just better at things than others and having a kind of affirmative action for uh, citizens. And it's the same thing with like tar- tariffs and protecting jobs. Um, I think what people would say is I think they will you know, I think they'll take, I think they most, you know, most uh, immigration restrictionists, like, you know, nationalist types or, you know, conservatives, um, I think they say, I care about my own country more than other people. So if you tell them affirmative action for uh, natives, they'll say, yes, all Americans, you know, we shouldn't have any distinguish, you know, distinguishing uh, uh, categories between races, like within the country, but no, we're all one big family and we can, you know, all favor uh, ourselves over others. So I think that's just what they would say. I don't know if it would go anywhere. Yeah, I've, I've said it a handful of times uh, to people like individually and that, and that's the response. And then my response to that is, well, you know, America is the uh, land of the free and the home of the brave. We do pretty well. Uh, we don't need, we don't need the help. What are you, what are you talking about? Like we're not these weaklings who can't do well in international labor market competition. Like what's the, like, wh- why do you think America is so weak? Yeah, I think Pretty that's. I, yeah, I think that's better. I think that's that that can work too because you're appealing to like, it's like these immigrants. You know, they can't speak. You know, I think they'll say something like, uh, you know, they're willing to work for lower wages, and me as an American, you know, I shouldn't have to live like you know they're willing to live in you know houses ten with ten people in a room and like work for pennies and taken advantage of by the capitalists, and you know I as an American don't want that, so I'm protecting my own interests. Like you know, that's like sort of the. That's the the response, um, and so I think that yeah, that's it's hard to because it's that's based on you know on an economic you know assumption. So you have to get into the uh, uh, you have to get you because then you have to respond. You, know, you if you were in this debate, I imagine would respond with no, no, look at the economic data, this and that. Uh, but I think they, I think that I think that uh, the idea of sort of the attitudinal sort of path you're you're you know you're getting at like don't be afraid. This is something that's like, you know, this is something that you support. If you're old, you're weak, you're afraid um, of competition. Um, you know, the world, you need to be, you know, embrace dyna- dynamism and, you know, uh, uh, don't be a sissy. Yeah, exactly. That always works on conservative. Yeah. Own the libs and don't be a wimp is always, are always good arguments uh, with conservatives. Uh, so, so yeah, I, <laughs> I think, I think there's promise there. 
So you, you mentioned that, um, you know, it sort of smuggles in a lot of these sort of anti-market ideas. Do, do you think, you know, we've seen at least amongst conservative intellectuals, like, you know, national conservatives sort of moving away from embracing free markets during more, uh, sing the praises of national industrial policy uh, and other types of heavy handed government interventions, antitrust, etc. Do you think that nativism was one of the vehicles because it's such an anti-market ideology sort of smuggling that in? the broader conservative coalition? Is that what's mainly responsible for this shift or is it something else? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think what happened was, so I, you know, I've, I've been following the, um, uh, the conservative movement and the uh, uh, conservative restri- uh, the restrictionists for a while, and it started out where it was only basically like people who just didn't like um, just didn't like immigrants for cultural reasons um, were the ones who made like whatever argument they could. Um, and so like, you know, and, and, and that became, and I think it became like sort of a PC way, um, to like, to talk about economics to like, I think cover up. Cause I think that the taste-based, you know, discrimination stuff is much stronger than, than you think. I think it's driving a lot of this. I think it be, I think it became like, they started, people started justifying to themselves, like, no, you need to restrict labor markets and you need to protect American jobs. Um, because, you know, logically, there's no logical, like, you know, someone like Pat Buchanan, you look at his career, right? He's like anti-immigration, anti-trade. But, you know, as far as it goes, like pretty much a conventional conservative on most other economic issues. And it's like, you know, you have to think what's going on here. It's like Buchanan just sort of, you know, likes markets. He's bought into sort of a conservative vision. But, you know, he makes, any, makes a carve out for when you're dealing with foreigners. You know, he's convinced uh, he's convinced it's bad for you. And culture is it's sort of like this too. I don't know if she, I think she, I, I think I've seen some pro, you know, tariffs, some pro protectionist tweets from her. Uh, although it's not something she harps, she harps on. Uh, but then over time, I think that changes when you start making, you know, the, those arguments, you start getting people um, coming into the movement who are just left wing on economics. Um, so these people, um, you know, will, will buy in, like they might, be uncomfortable with the left because they've gone there. Maybe they're, they, you know, they don't dislike them for religious reasons or they dislike the left because they've gone too far on critical race theory or gender and sexuality. But these people are otherwise leftists. They didn't, they, they're not like Pat Buchanan. They didn't spend decades in the conservative movement and just were sort of raised on this pro market stuff and just internalized it with these things being exceptions. There are people coming in because they're, um, uh, they're coming in, you know, because they they're leaving the left for some reason, and they're hearing these anti-market arguments, and they take them and they build on them, and then they they influence the broader movement. Yeah, I think the rise of sort of antitrust is like this. I mean, you have somebody who's like very concerned about uh, uh, immigration. Often they're very, you know, they're into like you know breaking up big tech and and stuff like that. So I do think there's a, you know, I do think that there is something there. Yeah, I think it. I think it has changed the conservative movement. Um, I think it, I think it was started out as sort of just a, a you know an a cultural based uh, uh, sort of objection, but then once you started having to justify it like in words and like actual like public debate, like it created these interesting dynamics that moved people away from markets more generally. Because I because I remember seeing uh, Jeff Sessions and others in 2015 2016 saying that the GOP needs to become like the Worker Party. And in my comments and Mark Corian and others and sort of like people on the vanguard of sort of the, the nativist, the rising nativist right. And my response at the time I wrote about was like, there is no worker party in the world, no labor party uh, that is pro-market. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, like if you look at Jeff Sessions, did Jeff Sessions ever support anything that was anti-market besides immigration restrictions and maybe maybe trade restrictions? I mean, did, did he ever call for higher taxes or uh, more more EPA regulations? Like, like, no. Right. So it's interesting because you do have, you know, I think in the policy, what you end up getting is you do get like. You, you you know it ends up not being intellectually consistent. So I think the the free market people within the conservative movement are strong enough that anything except immigration or maybe trade, like when Trump's in office, they can basically get their way because these restrictionists maybe they'll say they like you know antitrust and they want higher tax on the rich, but they're not in positions of power and they don't care enough about it um, to make it a big thing. So I think you get something like the Trump administration. So I think Trump has basically behaved the way any of the next Republican, you know, the next Republican is going to behave, whether it's Trump or somebody else, you're going to get um, some tough stuff on immigration because that's what the nativists, that's what they care about. Um, and you'll get, I, I don't think you're going to see anti-market stuff outside of that. Maybe the trade stuff at this like depends on whether it's the person of Trump who's in office or it's somebody else. Uh, but I think that's the sort of the equilibrium in the Republican party. Now it's like pro market, except when you're dealing with foreigners, then you have, then you have an exception. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, like the way that I always sort of, or the way I've been viewing the the right for a while is it's just like 70% anti-left. Um, or not liking leftists, uh, maybe even more specifically. And then you have like coalitions of different groups. You know, there's the I want to invade the world group. There's the like um, economic pro, pro-free markets. And the thing that they have going for them is because they believe in something <laughs> that's ideological, they're, and they're smaller, they're also like well-organized and uh, a cohesive group that have worked together. So like uh, looking at the history of like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act under Trump, I mean, it was like years in the making, free market, mostly free market conservatives and libertarians in DC and elsewhere, putting together proposals like years and years in advance and setting them on the Hill, building tax models and running it through because they actually cared about this stuff. And you know, there are a handful of, um, and you just don't see that I think in the broader conservative movement. Because they're not really, it's not like they're pro something. They're more, you know, with some exceptions, they're more anti the baddies. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And, and it's interesting. I mean, the fact that, you know, the Trump, the Trump uh, uh, big legislative accomplishment was the tax cut. Um, and then they almost like did a skinny repeal of Obamacare. And I remember the time it was going to be a big cut in government, um, you know, the b- big cut in government spending on health care. And pretty much every Republican voted for it. And like it went down because of like John McCain, right? And like, I don't know, mm-hmm. like Lisa Murkowski, or maybe one or two others. Um and so, like, yeah, you had this populist movement that just didn't care, you know, like, you think that would be like defending Medicare and like, Medi- you know, whatever, you know, the Medicaid, you think that would be like a thing for like a movement that's supposedly populist, uh, but it just didn't matter. Now, if, you, if Trump tried to do immigration reform uh, with legal, then he would have been every, it would have been. Talk, uh, talk radio, Tucker. Um, it would have been everything. So, yeah, I, I think that I think that a lot of I think the immigration issue is very strong, and I, I'd put you know just the cultural issues more generally, uh, critical race theory and like you know gender theory and like you know what what you get in the PC. I know it when I see it. You know, the, the just wherever you see it, like it, in the culture institution. That's the that's the um, that's the uh, the sort of the uh, the fuel that's driving sort of the populist and the media outrage. And then, you know, the libertarians, I think, are in a good position on most things uh, because they're just sitting there and they can they can they can ride these like the thing about libertarians is they need they need a uh, vehicle to get into power. Because if you just ran on libertarianism, um, there's a libertarian party. It gets like two percent of the vote. So you have to sort of hitch your wagon uh, to something. 
Um, and so, yeah, when conservatives end up in power, I mean, the libertarians, you know, people are more libertarian leading people are going to be the ones, you know, that are going to be the ones who are going to present bills and, you know, to a large extent, fill the regulatory agencies. Uh, so yeah, I think, I think libertarians are actually, you know, quite lucky given their, uh, uh, you know, I I don't think like, I I don't think that the, um, I don't think there's a, there's a, there's an existential threat to the Republicans being general free market orientation. Um, I just don't think it's there. I think there's just a lot of sort of hot air. And then with the energy actually being focused on these cultural issues. That makes a lot of, I think that makes a lot of sense. That's certainly what I see here on the ground in DC. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but let me ask you, uh, if, if anyone wants to jump in, they, uh, they can, let me ask you, um, somebody by the way asks, wasn't the Haitians under the bridge, a turning point in Hispanic perception of immigration. What's he talking about the Haitians under the bridge? What does that mean? Uh, so there were some periods of time. It was last year. Um, and, and it's been happening now where there's sort of like a large sudden surge and, uh, in Haitian, uh, asylum seekers along the border. Uh, that sort of came over sort of very chaotic images, probably the most chaotic images I've ever seen along the border, like lines of people crossing the river, living under a bridge on the uh-huh. U.S. side, being detained. Um, I mean, I, I think that might have added to the perceptions, especially on um, uh, that down in like South Texas, which is where that was. Um, but, you know, Hispanics were already kind of going that way because of the, the vote numbers in like 2020. So uh-huh. I think I think you know that that's just like more evidence of this sort of like chaos, and it might be because they're different, too. That yeah. uh, that Hispanics are seeing that. But the the other thing is, you know, there's that there's that joke where it's like, you know, my ancestors didn't come to this country so that a bunch of foreigners could come here and overrun it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's just like assimilation uh, occurs. Like my grandpa, who is uh, you know, he's an immigrant, and and he'll say, you know, I know it's kind of silly me saying this as an immigrant, but. Uh, you know, sometimes I think there's too many immigrants in America. Yeah. <laughs> right. So he's fully assimilated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think, yeah, I think there's something to the, yeah, I just looked up the, the Haitians and the bridge. Yeah. Those are, those are striking images. Uh, how do they end up under a bridge? Why don't other immigrants ever end up under a bridge like that? So it was, um, so I talk a lot to Mexican government officials and to people in Mexico and the private sector and nonprofit sector who work on this. And what um, the theory is, so a lot of these individuals go to Mexico or Central America from Haiti, and then they sort of come up. And the Mexican government does a lot of immigration enforcement on behalf of the United States because we pay them to. And there was a big disagreement uh, with Biden over some policy at the time. I think it was Biden was uh, opposing like the the Mexican changes to their national uh, natural resource law that would basically like nationalize a lot of American investments down in the oil industry or quasi nationalize them. And mm-hmm. uh, and then there was disagreements about trade. And so the theory was that the Mexican government just like let all these people loose. And we're like, go ahead, go to the border um, as sort of like an FU uh, to the Biden administration uh, to say uh-huh. like, hey, this could be a lot worse anytime if we don't get what we want on some of these other issues. Uh-huh. So it's like That's... a bargaining trip. Ah, interesting. How was the, you know, speaking of which, I think this will be the last question, unless somebody wants to ask a question. What is the, um, I know that the Trump administration, they, uh, even before COVID, they got the net migration down to by a lot. I think it was like by half or something, like before COVID. Um, what's happened with the, what's happened in recent uh, years with now with Biden? Um, has, have the numbers ticked up again? Yeah, so the, the, the immigration numbers started to decline in 2016, uh, off of trends started to decline. And they did decline by like 2019. They were down by like 10 to 20 percent. 
uh, COVID cut it by, um, um, you know, about 90 to 95% uh, during that we've, um, Gone uh, during the Biden administration. Um, last year, they wasted about 150,000 green cards total. They didn't issue them, and under law, they go away. If they're not issued, and the they have been very slow at reopening embassies and consulates uh, for the visa interviews. They've been under issuing uh, green cards, and even on like low skill work visas, Congress has approved uh, an extra 60,000, and Biden hasn't issued like 22,000 of them. Um, so this administration has been very uh, disappointed. It's not their priority to get the legal immigration system uh, up and running. So we're still below trend. And um, the way that I talk about it, my colleagues, is that if we get back to what the policies were in 2016, you know, by the year 2024, it'll be like a miracle. We'll consider this like a tremendous success mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> for the Biden administration. So they're, they're just not that into it. Like a lot of the people who work in there, and I taught the people at DHS and other agencies, you know, they, they want, they know the problems. They want to get it fixed. They want to get it up and running. But a lot of the uh, political advisors in the White House, um, they think that Trump won because of the immigration issue. And they don't want to, you know, reopen legal immigration 100%. I mean, they use that justification for everything they mm-hmm. don't want to do. So they, they use that justification for keeping Trump's tariffs um, and for the immigration. And it's just, uh, it's maddening. Does it make does it make sense? I mean, the pace of legal immigration is that something people notice? Because it seems like people get upset about the even Fox News and stuff, like about the caravan. They're not upset that they're processing visas faster, generally, right? So how does this make any sense? It doesn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it makes sense if all you read is like Stephen Miller, uh-huh. um, and Mark Corian. It makes sense. But if you take a look at, if you spend any time reading conservative media or talking to conservatives, normal conservatives, um, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the, the animus, it's, it's about build the wall and, and getting illegal immigration under control is what they care about. It's, you know, the, the, whether the legal numbers are a million or two or three a year, I mean, nobody, nobody really notices because it's yeah. early. <laughs> that, that's funny. Yeah. So when, so if the, political argument doesn't make sense. So what's the, what's the Biden administration do? Are they just, are they just incompetent and they're making it like a political excuse? Like they're doing something on purpose. I think that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like my, my, my colleague, David beer, who works on immigration here, he, um, he thinks it's more ideological, sort of like an old labor union left, um, uh-huh. which, which I think makes sense in like department of labor, which has a hand in some visa approvals. I think that, uh-huh. that, that probably makes sense. But I think overall, it's just a general level of um, incompetence. I mean, during COVID, Trump fired or moved around um, basically all the people who did visa interviews overseas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so uh, given how complex and fragile the legal immigration system was, he basically like took out one link in that chain and the whole thing like unraveled. And getting that back together is tough giving the constraints of the law but it's also something that they could do if if they really wanted to like i've asked a lot of my democratic friends who work on this issue i'm like hey who's your stephen miller like who's the guy (laughs) who's gonna push and make sure all this stuff happens and they're like well we just don't work like that and it's really weird in terms of their respect for like basically like the post new deal american administrative state um they're like kind of conservative and the sense we're like, well, you know, we don't want to rock this. We don't want to do this. We don't want to, you know, it's like very, uh-huh. 
you know, we don't want to upend this order, which we really respect. And it's just like a very odd, odd mindset. It's something that I would have expected from, um, you know, ideological conservatives. <laughs> well, yeah. have you argued to people that uh, the great replacement is this is probably this is probably inconsistent with that? If this is the seems like the last priority in the Biden administration all the time. But then they come <laughs> to the border. They all, probably... oh, look at all the people crossing illegally. Uh, <laughs> Do they ever? Like, oh, you... And then yeah. I say, like, well, why would Biden want a bunch of people to cross illegally to cause them political problems when he could just let anybody in legally if he wanted to? Like, what's the what's the logic there? And I mean, nobody's even thought about that. I mean, yeah. I just don't you, get a response. You, you argue you argue with the Twitter randos uh, quite a bit. I I appreciate that you're you're willing to engage you're willing to engage them on these things. Sometimes you learn stuff, but yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, okay. If, uh, okay. I think that's, I think that's good. Alex, it was, uh, it was fun. Um, thanks everybody for, uh, showing up and, uh, yeah, man, have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. Happy father's day. Happy father's day, man. Take care. All right. See ya.